0: Yes, such good work. You may be seated. You may be seated. So good to see you this morning. I think kids, uh, absolutely, uh, to my right and to your left. So K5, just head that way. Quite a few of you in here. And uh, you, I promise, will have a great time with uh, uh, Alex and crew. So uh, enjoy, enjoy that. Well, um, uh, for the last two uh, weeks, and this will be third, we've introduced the sermon in the same way. And so I want you to look at the screen, and this is what we call our vision framework here at Grace, and it's simply a reminder every, every, single, uh, every single week. Our mission at Grace is to exalt Christ, see Him transform lives, and send us out to embrace our community. When we think community, we think right here. When we think community, we think uh, at Warsaw, Warsaw, where we've got a team going in a couple weeks uh, to rebuild a home after the hurricane. When we think community, we think uh, Senegal, we think Ecuador, those places we also go to. Our values are Jesus over everything, heart change that leads to life change, others before ourselves. These values govern how we do what we do. Our strategy, is to discover God, belong uh, in uh, community, uh, fellowship with one another, serve right here at 5182, and go everywhere else. Simple, simple strategy. And so, what uh, this sermon series is about is the fourth part of the framework: our measures. Um, And so there are five, and this is the third sermon, measure three. Uh, The first is uh, we believe that somebody who is walking with the Lord, as he or she should, looks up to God daily. Uh, We believe that person looks in at oneself daily for a life that reflects the Spirit. And we believe that that person looks across at others weekly in fellowship And accountability, and that's what I'll talk about today. And all of these sermons so far, it'll change next week, have come from Hebrews 10. And in Hebrews 10, there is a sense. Since this has happened, let us, and there are three let us statements. All right, so since what? Um, Therefore, brothers, uh, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. So those, those since, you could summarize all of that to say since Jesus since Jesus did what he did by dying on the cross and subsequently resurrecting from the dead, since he ascended into heaven and now is our high priest, since all of that is the case, we can come into the very presence of God. What should we do? Well, let us draw near. Uh, Let us hold fast, and today let us stir up one another to love and good works. This uh, word stir up is interesting because you really wouldn't expect it. It means to incite or to provoke. So it seems to be a negative and even sounds like an ungodly word. Uh, This is a pastor, scholars believe, who wrote Hebrews, so why would a pastor ever look at his congregation and say to them, provoke one another, incite one another? Both of uh, our children have played sports, though I have never, if you know me, played a sport in my life. I'm not coordinated, nor am I athletic. The only thing I've ever done is to run and ride a bike. So that's it. But both our kids have. And uh, Hannah played college volleyball. She played uh, high school, middle school, high school volleyball, and went on to play college volleyball. Well, she played at the junior college level for a couple of years and then transferred to a Division II school. So she played uh, at two different levels, and she just exceeded. She she was so good and did such a good job, but she had remarkable coaches uh, at her junior college. They were a husband-wife team, and uh, there was an assistant. They were godly people. It was a tremendous experience, though it was a state-supported school. And um, they never lost a game. Two years. The only time they lost was when they went uh, to the national tournament, and they lost there. But they never lost a game up until uh, the, the national tournament. But they would play teams that weren't so good. And their coach would pull them aside before the game and said, okay, and would say, this team isn't good. And what this means is you will win, number one. And number two, you will win in three games, not four, not five, three. Three. Number three, this will be the margin of each game. This is the total number of points that team is allowed to score against us. And if they score more points than they're allowed to score, you will run tomorrow. And Hannah said they would have one eye on the ball and another on the scoreboard. Because they knew, even if they won, if it was not by the appropriate margin, they were running what is that coach doing? She's provoking. She's inciting, you might say. Now, Hannah had another coach at uh, her college that she went to, and he provoked in a bad way. Negative things, he said. He tore the girls down constantly. We would go watch her play, and she would sit and cry over lunch afterward. Because he provoked, but it was not the way it ever should have been. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that we are to stir up one another. Now some of you read this and you think you have the spiritual gift of confrontation. And so you think, oh, I love this. I'm supposed to stir people up and I love catching people getting it wrong. And so you do, and you find it, and you can't wait to go tell them, even though they never ask for your opinion, and you've never earned the right to be heard. You're going to be heard. And so you read this, and you run with it. Others of you think you have the spiritual gift of avoidance. Oh, you hate conflict. You never want to jump into it, so you're going to go the other way. This is neither. This is neither. Kristen Allison, who prayed this morning, wrote this in her life group lesson about these words. To our Western eyes, the thought of something provoking, stirring up, or spurring us on can be unpleasant. We've been conditioned to think of provocation as a bad thing, provoking a fight, inciting violence, stirring up a conflict, etc. However, the term provoke actually means to call forth, to stir up purposefully or to provide a needed stimulus. She continues, much like spurs, the words we use to stir up fellow believers must be handled with care. We can't be lackadaisical, nor can we be bullheaded and rash. In context, provocation is merely a tool used to purposefully bring out a desired result or action. In our case... It's meant to bring out love and good works, but a tool is only as effective as the person using it. We must allow ourselves to be led by the Holy Spirit and not our own preferences or desires when trying to motivate other believers. Well written, amen? So good, thank you, Kristen. We are called by God to interact with others in such a way that as a result, according to uh, Hebrews 10, there is both a change in attitude and a change in action. A change in attitude and action. Love is the attitude, good works is the action. In in 13, 1 through 7, Hebrews, uh, there is a list of those good works. Brotherly love, hospitality, concern for the suffering, sexual purity, generosity, those things are listed there. But I want you to see the balance. If the writer had said, only stir up to love, then we would find ourselves awash in a sea of sentimentalism, wouldn't we? Uh, In other words, the world's statement is this. If it feels good, what? Do it. This is not what it means to stir one another up to love and good deeds. If the writer had only mentioned good works, we would find ourselves knee-deep in the muck and mire of moralism, would we not? Just do better. Just be a better person. Be a better woman. Be a better man. Be a better son. Be a better daughter. But no, what we discover is that we are to be stirred up to an attitude of love that will result in some actions called good works. One without the other is incomplete. So the obvious question is how? It's answered right here. Secondly, meeting together. As a matter of fact, it's cast in the negative, not neglecting, to forsake or desert is what the word neglect means. It's a strong word. It's the same word that Jesus screamed from the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken deserted, neglected me. So what was happening to the Hebrews? Scholars think that in the pressure of the outside world and with the excitement of their faith waning, they wandered. They wandered away. F.F. Bruce writes, It appears that disapproval and rejection from an unbelieving society played a significant part in the hesitancy of some to continue their identification with those who believed in Jesus. It's interesting the word that the pastor uses for meet together. Now, there is a word for church that is used almost always, I think over a hundred times in the New Testament, but it's not the word here. He uses the word that is the counterpart to the word synagogue. Well, why? If you've ever been to Israel and you've gone to a synagogue, you'll realize it's not the temple, not a grand building, As a matter of fact, synagogues were in every town. The synagogue was a place of local worship, but it's also where students went to school. It's also where the local government met to decide matters. The synagogue was a community center of sorts where everything happened. So why then, how does that impact what we understand about meeting together? Meeting together then is doing life together. That's what it means. This noun, synagogue, is also used to describe the final assembly of God's people at the last times. Like one day there will be a massive gathering. All of God's saints from all over the world, from all the centuries and the millennia, those who have trusted Christ, from Abraham all the way down to your aunt and uncle and to your cousin and to your friend, all of us one day will be together in heaven and there will be a grand feast called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb and we will all sit down together and we will all eat together and we will Together be with the Lord, Paul writes in First Thessalonians 4. It says, therefore, comfort one another with those words. Please hear me. If you don't want to be with God's people now, why would you want to be with God's people for all eternity? If there's not a desire in you to be with the people of God now, can you imagine doing it forever? At Grace, our primary tool to see this happen is life groups. It's Just small groups, five to six couples, six to eight singles, some larger, some smaller, meet together around God's Word. As a matter of fact, things were so wild after the first service. I'm looking to see if I have it in my pocket. Here it is. Somewhere around you should be a little piece of Velcro. Grab it if you see it. They're probably spread out on chairs, and uh, just uh, you will see a little piece. Of, this, is our, this is our object lesson that David Grindstaff uses to think on our simple mission of life groups at Grace. All right, so, so with all of these, I just think it'd kind of be fun for us to tear them at once. For some reason, that just does something for me. So, uh, so one, two, three, we'll do it. You ready? One, two, three. That's cool sounding, isn't it? Don't take much. All right. Here is our simple purpose for small groups at Grace Velcro people to God's Word and one another. That's it. Velcro people to God's Word and one another. That's why life groups exist. Now, there are a myriad of things that can happen in a life group. But that is our simple purpose. And so if you are attending Grace and you're new to Grace, your first step wouldn't even be to join a life group. It would be to come to starting point. That's how you learn more about the church. It's the fourth Sunday of the month. I think it's the 28th maybe this month. And it's the fourth Sunday and it's uh, 3 to 5 p.m. in the entrance B. We have a meal together Childcare is provided. It's a chance for a great conversation between you, me, and the staff. Just love to have you there. If you're a part of Grace and you're not in a group, when we're done, you can head to that next steps uh, sign right there. David Grindstaff will be in there. He'd love to get your name and get you connected. This is what we want to see happen. Velcro people to God's word. Number one and one another, number two. We do life together. So how do you do it? By meeting together and encouraging one another. This word encouraging is interesting. It also is rich with meaning. It means to rebuke, warn, encourage, and comfort. To rebuke, warn, encourage and comfort, all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? The day of Christ's return. Now, when the pastor wrote this, and now we're 2,000 years closer to that. Jesus, he was trying to assure them that though they may be suffering and enduring difficulty, Jesus is coming back for them. And I would say to you this morning, I can assure you, based on God's word, that Jesus will come back for his church. Amen? Amen? He will come back for us. He's coming back for his bride. So speaking of brides, when Wendy and I got married, I was poor as dirt. And uh, so I, I bought her a ring, of course. And, uh, and uh, it's kind of hard to see one of those, you know. But it's there. There's a diamond stuck in there. It's there. But the other thing I did was the traditional thing was to buy her a gift that I would give her the night before we got married. So I decided that I was going to buy her some pearls. And then when I realized how expensive the real deal is, I bought fake ones because that's all I could afford, Right? Real deal pearls are expensive, why? Well, if you've ever read about them, in order for a pearl naturally to happen, typically a parasite will crawl up into a mussel, a clam, some kind of shell, and that shell's response, that clam's response to that parasite is to secrete something called nacre, N-A-C-R-E, and it, and it just does it again and again and again, and the pearl is produced. Now, it's kind of almost a fable that it's a sand. It's almost always, as I've read, a parasite, and the pearl is produced. Well, it takes a long, long time, and you gotta find the things, and those kinds are super expensive. Then there are cultured pearls. Cultured pearls are man-made pearls, I guess you would say, but they also take a very long time and uh, they can misfire and so you spent all this money uh, so it's a big investment so they're, they're super expensive too. And then there's this good old plastic or whatever that stuff's made out of. <laughs> it's not so expensive. So I gave it to her. She wore it in our wedding. Um, the necklace and the bracelet and the earrings. Uh, what is my point? Two, one, is spiritual growth takes time. It just does. It just takes time. And it does not happen without an irritant. Uh, there's got to be somebody in your life who is provoking. You, you just have to hear the truth spoken in certain ways. And that irritant, ironically enough, is called encouragement. And encouragement, ironically enough, has a positive and a negative facet aside. Proverbs twenty-eight 23, you'll see three verses on the screen. You may just want to jot down the references. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Proverbs 9, 8, and 9. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Some people aren't teachable. No need to waste your words on that person. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. Wise people are wise because they know they need somebody to speak truth to them. It's what makes them wise. It's not their depth nor breadth of knowledge. I would contend with you, it's the depth and breadth of their heart that makes them wise. Proverbs twelve twenty five. the positive side. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Isn't it good to hear good things? Now, not going to get much of that on the news, are you? No. But it's good. We need to be together and encourage one another. Um, Let us consider that word consider means to think carefully through how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Now, this happens in life groups. Are they perfect? No. If they were, you couldn't join. You would surely mess it up. No. No. It's, it's a group of people struggling like you, needy as you are, with opinions, ideas, hurts, and habits, and hang-ups. Um, I would also add that this works in marriage, too. Your marriage ought to be this, you as husband and wife should provoke one another to love and good deeds. Also, with your kids. Certainly necessary. C.S. Lewis wrote Screwtape Letters. He said it was the most difficult book he wrote ever because Screwtape Letters is a compilation A fictional account, of course, of letters from Screwtape, who is a senior demon, to his nephew, whose name is Wormwood. And Lewis said, I had to climb into the mind of Satan to write the book. And it was dark at times and difficult. Steve Fuller, who is a pastor, I came across this, thought it worth sharing, shares his version of what Screwtape, the senior demon, might have written to Wormwood, his understudy, on how to attack his patient's faith. Now keep in mind when you hear the word enemy here, it will refer to God. This is Satan, chief demon, writing to his nephew. My dear Wormwood, your recent letter concerned me. You sound pleased with the trials you are bringing your patient. You think the layoff and financial pressures and flu, we could add COVID, will automatically bring him to us? Don't you understand that as long as your patient is trusting the enemy, trials do nothing? In fact, if he is trusting the enemy, every trial will draw the patient closer to the enemy and further from us. Remember what I taught you, if the patient just looks to the enemy with faith, even weak faith the enemy will immediately strengthen him comfort him help him and your flame and darts will bounce off of him that's why you must focus all your energy on attacking his faith think of the beauty of this if you can keep him from trusting the enemy then everything that comes his way will draw him to us hardships will draw him to us because he will become bitter at the enemy and joys will draw him to us because he will love them more than the enemy so focus your energy on attacking his faith so here's what i recommend number one don't let him open the enemy's book Have him think he's not feeling spiritual enough. Suggest that it's too complicated. Tell him he's too tired. Be vigilant. Five minutes of prayerful reading can set him back months. Number two, if his faith is strong, don't panic. Have him notice how strong it is. Then have him congratulate himself on how his faith is stronger than his wife's or his friends. Third, If you do manage to weaken his faith, don't let up. Remember, all he has to do is cry to the enemy for help, and all your hard work will be lost. But be subtle. One of my favorites is to make them think they need stronger faith before they can cry out to the enemy. Four, keep him from others who belong to the enemy. Don't try to have him say no to fellowship. Instead, have him say yes to everything else. And when the enemy stirs his heart about being part of a church community, whisper that he can get more involved as soon as his schedule opens up. And five, if he does get time with believers, don't panic. Work with our fellow demons to keep the conversation shallow. Whisper to him that he's the only one with weak faith and that if he says something, he'll feel out of place. Don't let any of them ask how he is doing. And especially, don't let any of them pray for him. Mm. The enemy. Jesus said, comes to steal Heal and destroy. So, my encouragement to you good, meaningful, faithful fellowship with other believers. And we'd love to help you do it. There are loft group leaders sitting all around this room and they'll tell you. In their imperfect space, God shows up and shows out and strengthens the weak and encourages the faint of heart. And what a joy that is. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son that because he is our high priest who has passed through the heavens, we can draw near to you, Father, through Jesus who died, a death we deserved in our place for our sin and so paved the way into the holiest of places. And when we, by simple act of admitting our sin and turning from it, when we, by that simple act, can turn to you, Jesus, we are forgiven, and we are welcomed in. Lord, our vision here is not a bunch of groups of polished theologians but rather, weary travelers huddled together, velcroed to your word and one another, not overly complex, but amazingly effective. I pray for those who need that to take the obedient step today and say, show me where, show me how. I pray for those who maybe follow you from a distance or maybe participate in worship from a distance, that they would come a bit closer. Maybe come to starting point. Maybe the simple act of letting somebody at the front In that tent, no, I'm here. And I'm glad for you to know who I am. Love you, Jesus. Thank you for bringing us all together. And one day, thank you for that great gathering. Pray this in your name.